0: Well, if you've ever thought about your life and maybe the way you've lived it and then maybe wondered to yourself, what can God possibly do with me now? What what can God possibly do with my life now, considering the choices maybe that I've made in the past, the mistakes, the sin, the brokenness, the bad decisions, what can God do with someone like me? Well, all you have to do is read the Bible and you will quickly find out that God can do anything He wants to do with you as long as you're willing to let Him. Moses, uh, the man who led the Israelites out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years, the man who talked with God face-to-face according to Exodus 33.11, the man who received the law directly from God Himself on top of a mountain, that same man was an orphan with a speech impediment and a murderer. Jonah The prophet of God who convinced the entire city of Nineveh to repent before God was a disobedient coward, a man who for a period of time refused to follow the direct commands of God for his life. The apostle Peter, the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, who was also a member of Jesus' inner circle along with James and John, the man who preached to the masses at Pentecost and saw 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. The man who performed great miracles of healing, the man who walked on the water with Jesus and traveled extensively preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, that same man denied Jesus Christ three times and was described by Jesus himself as a man of little faith. Job, the only person or one of the only two people in the entire Bible to be described as blameless and upright by God himself, not only a man of great wealth, but of great wisdom, was also a man stricken with many diseases after losing his family and all his wealth. At one point, he even cursed the day that he was born, Job 3. David, the great king of Israel, who as a young shepherd boy, single-handedly killed the giant Goliath when no one else would dare even approach him. The man who was described in Acts 13.22 as being a man after God's own heart. That same man was an adulterer and a murderer. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote nearly half of the books of the New Testament, performed extraordinary miracles and planted churches all over the first century Mediterranean world, was also the most feared persecutor of the early church as he systematically tortured and murdered innocent Christians. We've just seen recently Gideon, the great warrior who led the armies of Israel into battle, completely decimating their archenemy, the Midianites, was also a man full of fear and doubt and greed and idol worship. You understand, God does extraordinary things through ordinary people all the time. The difference is not that they were exceptional to begin with. No, they were simply willing to do what God had called them to do in spite of the profound mistakes in their past and even along the way. Because listen, yesterday has little to nothing to do with what God can accomplish through you today. All right? The past is there for you to learn from, not to live in, which means the only thing that can ever limit how far you go with God in this life is you. It's not not God who holds back in our relationship with Him, right? We are the ones who hold back in our relationship with Him. It's not God who says, this is too hard for me. No, we're the ones who say, this is too hard for me. It's not God who decides he can't handle the pressure. No, we're the ones who decide we can't handle the pressure. God is not the one who gives up on us. We're the ones who give up on ourselves. You see, we give up on believing that he can actually accomplish anything in our lives that he wants to, regardless of how we've lived our lives up to this point. So we raise the white flag of surrender to our past and in the process we limit what God can do in and through us in our future instead of believing what His Word says, that as a Christian I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. He didn't say uh, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me as long as I haven't messed up too much in my past. No, the apostle Paul was the one who wrote this. Listen, nobody could mess up their past better than Paul. His past was a complete disaster, and yet he chose not to surrender to his past because God doesn't call us to surrender. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of talk in churches today about surrendering your life to Christ actually to the point that we sing songs about total surrender and we have Bible studies about surrender and we pray for each other that we should be able to more adequately surrender our lives to Christ. And listen, I understand the heart behind those statements, but the truth is we need to be a little bit careful about how we use that phrase because that's not what the Bible actually teaches us. The Bible doesn't say that we're to surrender our lives to Christ but over and over and over and over again. The Bible says we are to submit our lives to Christ and the difference couldn't be any more profound, which is why all throughout Scripture we're called not to surrender, but to submit ourselves to Him. And listen, here's the difference. Here's why it matters actually that we understand the difference. When a soldier surrenders... He lays his weapons down before the enemy and he gives up. When a soldier submits, he picks up his weapons, kneels before his king, and he says, What are your orders that I may faithfully carry out whatever you command me to do? Do you see the difference? One is giving up, admitting defeat before your enemy and then doing nothing, while the other is getting up, professing your allegiance to your king and then going into battle for him. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he wasn't surrendering his life to those who were killing him. No, he was submitting his life to the will of the Father. That is a really, really big difference The Apostle Paul says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2.8. He doesn't say Jesus resigned himself or surrendered himself to the point of death. No, he says he became obedient to the point of death, which is actually the very picture of submission. In fact, if you read that in the ancient Greek, the original language, the, the word obedient there is the Greek word hupekoos, and in addition to obedience, it means to be submissive, to submit. Well, who is Jesus being submissive to? The Father. Okay? This same thing applies to us as well. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul doesn't say surrendering to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Apostle Peter doesn't say, wives, surrender yourselves to your husbands. No, he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, 1 Peter 3.1. James, the brother of Jesus, doesn't say surrender yourselves therefore to God. No, he says submit yourselves therefore to God, James 4.7. This isn't a mistake. God isn't calling his people to surrender. He's calling us to submit. And yet I believe, honestly, that far too many Christians today are surrendering their lives to their mistakes, to their past, instead of submitting their lives to Christ. And I understand often we do that because we feel inadequate and unworthy because of the way we've lived our lives up to this point, mistakes we've made. In the past, bad decisions that we can't seem to let ourselves live beyond. And so we give up. We surrender, which means we're giving more credit to what our past can do to us than what Jesus Christ can do through us. And I'm telling you, If you would just submit your life to Him, no matter how badly you've screwed up your past, no matter what state your life is in right now, if you will simply submit your life to Christ, don't surrender to your past, don't give up, rather submit yourself to Him, then you will remove the limitations that you place on yourself because of your past. That is the place where you will find, by the way, that there's nothing He cannot do with your life. This is a lesson that we need to learn today, and it's a lesson that the Israelites needed to be reminded of, as it turns out, over and over and over and over and over again in their lives, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through the book of Judges, the fact that we have a choice as to what we focus on in this life, what we cannot do based on who we are not, or what God can do based on who He is. Because focusing on yourself is only going to highlight your own limitations. Focusing on Christ, however, will lead you to limitless possibilities for your life. So we're going to pick the story back up at chapter 11. Uh, In chapter 10, after mentioning a couple of the minor judges, we find God's people repeating the same pattern throughout this book where they've focused on themselves for far too long and now they're being oppressed by their enemies in the very worst way because they've surrendered to the pagan gods and their mistakes of the past and so they come before God repentant of their sins, submitting themselves finally and once again to Him. This is a cycle repeated over and over again. So they submit themselves to God, mistakes and all, and what we will see is God moving on their behalf, even through the mistakes they've made. In fact, we'll see God moving even through the mistakes they continue to make in the story, which leads us then to chapter 11. And so we'll begin by reading the first three verses. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead the father of, was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons, And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. If you were here in the past two weeks, uh, then you're familiar with the story of Abimelech, uh, the son of Gideon and an illegitimate ruler over Israel, uh, for three years, uh, they called him king. I was talking with Brian last week. He wasn't actually a legitimate king. He was a functional king, right? He was an illegitimate leader. And in many ways, Jephthah's life here parallels that of Abimelech, at least in some ways. Both of their mothers lived morally questionable lives. One was a prostitute and the other a concubine. Uh, and as such, both of these men were denied inheritance rights by their half-brothers and driven away from the family, both established themselves as mighty warriors, both surrounded themselves with worthless men, and both committed great acts of lawlessness. When verse 3 says that Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him, the phrase went out with him is a reference to Jephthah leading raiding parties into the towns and villages in the region of Gilead, right? And we don't know the the exact location of Tob, but it is written about in the Amarna letters. Uh, these are uh, ancient stone tablets that we have from the 15th and 14th centuries BC where Thutmose III, the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, writes about Tob as a small city-state in present-day uh, Syria. And so Jephthah would raid these towns in Gilead and then retreat back to Tob, where he lived. And then, of course, like Abimelech, Jephthah eventually maneuvers his way into becoming a leader of Israel, as we'll see, being appointed by men rather than by God himself. So a lot of things in common with Abimelech. And there are results in both cases, which we'll see, that are tragic. And yet that does not mean that God was not present And at work in and through Jephthah and in and through the Israelites on their behalf. Right. So keep that in mind as we go. The fact that this was a broken man with a broken past who continues to make some catastrophic mistakes as he goes. And yet in spite of all of that, God still does amazing things through him. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 17. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. We're just going to sweep that part about running you out of town under the rug. <laughs> if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witnessed between us. If we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people uh, with, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent, so Israel remained at Kadesh. So this is an interesting turn of events here. At the end of chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it says, The Ammonites were called to arms, and they had camped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the leaders, these elders of Gilead, are desperately looking for someone to lead them, someone who's capable, uh, a man of strength, a man of war, a man who knows how to lead other men into battle. And of course, Jephthah has been leading these raiding parties of worthless men, which is to say unprincipled men, not incapable men, into Gilead where they've been stealing and pillaging from the people of Gilead for some time now which means the leaders of Gilead are well familiar with Jephthah and what he's capable of. He's built quite a a reputation for himself as a fierce leader, uh, even if not a friendly one. But they're out of options. And so they ask him to lead their soldiers in the impending war with the Ammonites. And of course, Jephthah, being no dummy, uses their desperation for a leader as leverage in bargaining for more than just military leadership. So they swallow their pride and agree. They offer him not only military leadership, but political leadership as their ruler as well, should he win the coming battle with their enemies. And then they all commit to this agreement under oath before God in what amounts to a coronation of Jephthah's leadership in the sanctuary at Mizpah, which is interesting Because although at no time in this process do we see God's people consulting God about a new leader and although Jephthah lived the life of an outlaw, they all clearly still express their faith in God and their need for his approval in the way they go about striking this agreement, which just goes to show that God can redeem your poor choices The leaders of Gilead obviously had a hand in running Jephthah out of town to begin with, showing no mercy to a young man who was not responsible for the fact that his mother was a prostitute, by the way. But they ran him out of town anyway, rather than showing care and compassion to the outcast, according to God's command for his people, all the way back in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 10. And of course, for Jephthah's part, He's chosen a life of crime and revenge on the people of Gilead, many of whom probably had nothing to do with his banishment. And then both sides get together and go about forming an alliance without any input from God whatsoever, right? There isn't much more about this situation and these people that could be any more messed up than it already is. And yet, they're obviously, they're at least tempting to honor the Lord in their choices, as poor as those choices have been up to this point, by making this alliance before God in his sanctuary. And so God, being full of mercy and grace and love for his people as he is, he chooses to work on their behalf, even working through these poor choices that they've made, as we see in the last six verses we just read, where Jephthah, who just before this was an outlaw, robbing and stealing and no doubt ruining the lives of Israelite families in Gilead, this same man is now standing at the head of the Israelite army as the leader of God's people, proclaiming the truth of God's word to their pagan enemies. Now you tell me God can't redeem your poor choices. I get the fact that we make big mistakes. I've made plenty of those in my life, but listen, we don't have the right to decide that God can no longer use us because of our poor choices or our big mistakes. In fact, we're not even qualified to make that claim, right? Only God can do that, and he happens to be big enough and able enough, and understanding enough, and gracious enough, and forgiving enough, and yes, willing enough to redeem those poor choices and to use us for purposes far beyond our wildest dreams in spite of those poor choices. The Ammonites were ready to go to war with the Israelites because, according to them, the Israelites were disqualified from possessing the land they were living in because of their past. That was just the enemy trying to talk the Israelites out of what was rightfully theirs, which is exactly what the enemy tries to do to us today. He tries to convince us that somehow our past decisions disqualify us from God's promises. Listen, God isn't the one telling you that. He understands your mistakes better than you do. Yet he's not the one telling you to quit. He's not the one telling you you can't serve him because of your past. He's not the one telling you you're disqualified. You you somehow missed it because of your poor choices. No, in fact, it's just the opposite. God uses our choices, even the bad ones, to prepare us for the life that he intends for us to live. If anyone ever understood that, it was surely the Apostle Paul who wrote, You see, your past doesn't qualify you to become everything that God has created you to become. It is God alone who qualifies you. He goes on. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 10 through 14. You see, your dark past has not disqualified you from a bright future. The world may tell you that. The enemy will tell you that. In fact, you may tell yourself that, but it is definitely not God telling you that. If he can take Jephthah, the illegitimate son of a prostitute, a man who had chosen to lead a life of crime and make him the triumphant leader of the Israelites through the poor choices of the elders of those very same people, then he can surely redeem your poor choices and even use those choices to do great things in your life. Which means... If you're holding back from serving God and his people in the way that he created you to because of poor choices in your past, then you're not being humble or cautious or prudent. No, in fact, if you're holding back from doing what God created you to do because of poor choices in your life, then you're actually sinning against God and his people. Because God can redeem your poor choices, and he wants to. But you have to decide whether you're going to surrender your future to those poor choices or submit your future, including those poor choices, to Christ. Because once you truly submit yourself to him, God can accomplish more through you than you could ever imagine. Poor choices and all. All right, let's keep reading. As Jephthah continues his defense of Israel's ownership of the land they're living in, verses 18... Through 28. This is Jephthah continuing to tell the story of how Israel came into the land they're now occupying, all right? 18 through 28. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Ammonites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please, let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And so then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Eror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to him, the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So the orphaned criminal son of a prostitute, Jephthah, does a masterful job of recounting the story of the Israelites' plight through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And in doing so, he very effectively refutes the claims of the Ammonites. The Arnon was the boundary between Moab and the Amorites, not the Ammonites two different people groups. So Jephthah's pointing out the fact that the Ammonites are trying to lay claim to a land that was never theirs to begin with. And then in verse 23, he gives the credit to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, for giving them the land of the Moabites and the Amorites. And then essentially goes on to say, look, we're content with the land that our God has given us. So instead of complaining, why don't you be content with the land that your God, Chemosh, has given to you? We know from, uh, not only from the Old Testament, but also from the Mesha Stele. It's also known as the Moabite Stone. It's this large inscribed stone monument from the 9th century BC that tells us that Chemosh was the god of Moab. Yet we also know that Ammon and Moab were both descended from Lot all the way back in uh, Genesis chapter 19, which means they're closely related. And so they both shared some cultural and religious heritage, which might explain why the Ammonites are attempting to claim this land that is currently in dispute with the Israelites, but Jephthah is having none of it because he knows better. So he says, in effect, if you're going to try and claim their land as yours, then claim their God as yours as well and take what he's given you, which, by the way, would be nothing as far as this land is concerned. In other words, my God can beat up your God. So don't come crying to me because your God is too weak to give you what you want. Besides, Jephthah continues, for the past 300 years, we've lived here undisputed by the will of our God, the judge. So you've hardly a case to lay claim to it now. You see, as messed up as Jephthah's life has been, here he stands making a brilliant defense on behalf of the entire nation of Israel before their enemies. He clearly recognizes that Yahweh is solely responsible for giving them this land that they are about to have to defend against the Ammonites. It seems to me that he's also beginning to understand the parallel between the journey that Israel has been on and his own personal journey. God is waking this man up. The fact that both the nation of Israel and Jephthah himself were rejected by those who hated them, that they both wandered through life in disobedience to God before realizing his promise for their lives, that despite every improbability given their circumstances, God still brought them to a place of prominence and belonging. You see... The story of Israel and Jephthah's own personal story are powerful reminders that God can use your imperfect circumstances to accomplish His perfect will. When you submit your life to Christ, the fact is there are many promises that go along with that submission in Scripture. Many promises made to us when we submit our lives to Christ. In fact, one of those promises is in John 16:33 where Jesus says to his followers in this world you will have tribulation. Great. Here's another one in John 15:10 where Jesus says if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you're not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you. Well, that's a happy thought. Here's one from the apostle Paul. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Timothy three twelve. Jesus' brother James said, "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." Notice he didn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. In other words, count it all joy when your circumstances are not good because God can use your imperfect circumstances to accomplish his perfect will. Okay, When it comes to giving a reason as to why we're not doing what God created us to do, I think we often give far too much credit to our circumstances. I can't tell you how many people over the years, when they've come to me for counsel about why they're unhappy or unsatisfied in life, and I'll ask them, what do you think God has called you to do? Why do you think you're here? I can't tell you how many people will describe some kind of unfavorable circumstance in their life as the reason why they're not fully submitting their life to Christ. But you see, when we, when we surrender to unfavorable circumstances, we forfeit our future. When all the while, those unfavorable circumstances may actually be just exactly what is needed to get us where we need to be. You see, instead of viewing your unfavorable circumstances in life as an obstacle to where you should be, treat them instead as a necessary step in the right direction. And when you do that, your entire perspective of those circumstances will change. I promise you. You will actually begin to appreciate those difficult circumstances in your life for what they are. God's training program for the rest of your life. Right? When we started this church... I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I still do, in fact, that God would use us and those that he brings alongside of us, that would be you, by the way, to grow this church into everything that he wants it to become. Whatever that ends up looking like, that part is up to him. I just don't ever want to be the one standing in the way of it becoming all that it can become, which means which means some things in me have to change. Why? Because I'm not yet perfect or complete. And so God answers that prayer by changing me, by growing me so that the ministry can grow along with me. And how does he bring about that change in me? Well, the vast majority of the time, God changes us through difficult circumstances in our lives. It's a fact. He uses unfavorable, unpleasant, uneasy circumstances to change us, to shape us into the men and women that he intends for us to become. And although no one ever said it would be fun, the reason James says that we should count it all joy when those unfavorable circumstances show up in our lives is because they're actually a necessary part of the process of getting us exactly where God wants us to be. Where? Perfect and complete lacking in nothing and so instead of surrendering your life to those unfavorable circumstances see them for what they are and then submit yourself and your circumstances to the will of Christ and you'll begin to not only see real changes in your circumstances but you will most definitely see profound changes in yourself let's finish the story for today then verse 29 to the end of the chapter Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides, her father had neither son nor daughter." And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble for me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity and my companions. And so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months. She departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. So Jephthah leads the army of Israel on a sweeping victory over the Ammonites, but not before making a tragically foolish vow before God that whatever comes out of his house when he returns home, he would offer up to God as a burnt offering. At best, Jephthah was maybe expecting an animal to exit the door of his home first, right? I have a dog at home, a puppy, And the moment someone comes down our driveway, she's standing at the door waiting for it to open. And sure enough, the moment you open the door to see who's coming down the driveway, she shoots out the door like a rocket. She's the first one out the door every time. At best, maybe Jephthah was expecting an animal to come out of their house first. At worst, he was expecting one of his many household servants to come out of the house first, which is bad enough. Of course, the truth is we don't know exactly what Jephthah was thinking when he made the vow other than the fact that we know he was definitely not expecting his only child to come out of the door first. But she does. And Jephthah then believes, wrongly I might add, that he must now fulfill the vow that he made before God. Now it's true that in the ancient Near East, uh, vows that were made before God Uh, were very serious business, not fulfilling one. These were solemn affairs, refusing to fulfill a vow, breaking a vow was serious business that could anger God and bring terrible repercussions on the people. We see that in Deuteronomy 23, uh, Psalm 15, Ecclesiastes 5, other places. However, had Jephthah better understood the Mosaic law, he would have known that any vow ending in sin was not a binding vow. And without question, human sacrifice for the Israelites was a sin. It's clearly stated in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, Deuteronomy chapters 12 and 18, Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel chapters 20, 23, 39, and so on. Furthermore, Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6, specifically allowed for a way out for anyone who made a rash vow that would end in sin against the Mosaic law. So it's not as if Jephthah had no choice but to sacrifice his daughter, although that is clearly what he believed to be the case. And so in his ignorance, he follows through with the vow, not only sacrificing his own child, but terminating his family line, his own clan in the process as she was his only offspring. So throughout this story... We see this man, Jephthah, a man from a broken home, rejected by his own family, cast out by his own community, making poor choices throughout his life and at times having to confront the most difficult of circumstances. But we see him being transformed by God into someone he probably never imagined. He could be a victorious military leader and ruler over God's people, which means everything after that in his life was perfect. No, it wasn't, was it? Even after all that God had done in and through him, his life was far from perfect, as we've seen. And yet Jephthah is incredibly difficult as it must have been. I can't fathom it. He did not allow even this great tragedy to keep him from fulfilling his God-given destiny for the rest of his life. We won't take the time to read it now, but next week we'll see that Jephthah went on to successfully judge Israel for six more years before he died. Why? Because he didn't surrender the rest of his life to this tragedy, as horrifying as it was. Rather, he allowed it to continue to shape him and to shape his future as God's man. Okay, if you let him, God can turn your tragedy into triumph. I know sometimes that's easier said than done, but listen. Surrendering the rest of your life to a tragic event does not undo that tragedy. It simply creates another one because the potential that God created when he created you goes unfulfilled. And so, of course, we mourn the tragedies in our lives. Yeah, of course, we we hurt over them. Of course, we wish things had happened differently. And all of that is okay, as long as we don't surrender to it. As long as we don't stop living our lives when a tragedy occurs because the moment you stop moving forward, the moment you stop walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy... When you stop living as God created you to live, you're surrendering before the battle is over and in the process you miss out on the triumph that can come out of that tragedy when you submit the rest of your life and even that tragedy itself to Christ. No one is immune to tragedy and in fact God doesn't expect us to be. But we don't have to surrender to it. As much as it hurts... As hard as it is to keep pressing forward, as much as we wish it was different, God can turn your tragedy into triumph when you fully submit yourself to Him. But that's the key. Of course, the ultimate triumph of the life that is fully submitted to Christ, we know, is that day when we enter into eternity with Him, the place where there is no more tragedy. The place where He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. No crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It's the place where he makes all things new, Revelation 21, 4 and 5. Okay, listen. God is not calling you to surrender. That's giving up. No, God is calling you to submit. Everything that you have, all that you are, he created you. He's not calling you to give yourself up. He's calling you to take what he created and submit it to him. It's a profound difference. Submit every part of yourself to him, the good choices and the poor choices, your favorable circumstances and the unfavorable ones, the very best days of your life and the very worst of them. And through it all, he says, don't you give up because I'm not giving up on you. It's not God who holds back in our relationship with Him. We're the ones who hold back. God isn't the one who says, this is too hard for me. We're the ones who say, this is too hard for me. God doesn't say, I can't handle the pressure. We're the ones who decide we can't handle the pressure. God will never give up on you. So don't give up on yourself. Your poor choices don't scare him you're in perfect circumstances, don't worry him. And that tragedy in your life, it does not overwhelm him because God has not given up on you. So don't give up on yourself. Don't surrender your life to those choices and those circumstances and those events that can only limit your future. No, submit your life to the one who removes every limitation that we place on ourselves and then begin living the life that he created you to live. It's a life that reaches far beyond your poor choices. It's a life that transcends your imperfect circumstances. It's a life that triumphs over your tragedy. You see, there's nothing in this world that you could ever submit your life to that can do that for you. Only God can. Let's pray.